Hello and welcome to For What It's Earth, the nature, environment and climate change podcast that has a little look at some of the big issues and asks, is there anything that you and I can do to help save the planet just a little bit? I'm Emma and this week we're talking about nature connectedness in the context of understanding that our own health is very tightly tied with planetary health and that in order to tackle the mental health crisis and the climate and ecological crisis, we also need to improve our collective connection with nature. It is a very big topic, but a truly fascinating one. And to explore it, I've got with me researcher and ecologist Sam Gandhi, who's been doing some unbelievably fascinating work on nature connectedness and the potential role of psychedelics, yes, you heard me right, on as a mechanism for increasing nature connectedness. So, I mean, wow, Sam, hello, thanks for coming and welcome to the podcast. Thank, thanks, Emma. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really nice to be here uh, chatting to you. So um, I gave you a little bit of warning before we started recording, but the very first question, before we dig into the a million questions I have about you and your work, um, is what one good thing have you done for the planet this week? We start all of our episodes this way. Um, well, I guess in the grand schemes, it's a fairly little thing, but um, I went, I've, I'm hosting some, some good friends um, at this, this time, and we went on a nice, a nice walk. I live out in the Leicestershire countryside here, and I picked up, or we picked up, some litter that we found um, on this sort of nice, nice circuit around the, around the fields and verges that, that I take when we go for a walk. Yeah. So not nothing major, but just no. But we, I, I love the nothing major ones. I also feel the same anxiety whenever I come up with a small one, and I think my one this week is also very small. But overall, I think all of the small things need celebrating as well, particularly if they become a habit. And and your example yeah. as well of you guys being like a custodian of your of your landscape nearby, I think is so important to to have those kind of small habits of yeah. Every week I go and I just clean that little patch of land that I love, and I become a part of it improving. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, yeah, no, thank you. I mean, kind of feel quite lucky to live where I do. So it's nice to just keep an eye on it. And yeah, keep it a bit nice. It's a bit more exciting than mine. Mine was that I finally found a, um, like a shampoo bar that I like. I've tried a lot of different mm. ones. And I finally am okay. ready to tell people that I'm staking my claim behind the Faith in Nature shampoo bars. because Oh, nice. In, so rather than obviously having the plastic bottles that up for shampoo that you're throwing away each time. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. So nice. no plastic, no, you know, they're really small. There's no water content yeah. particularly in them. So if you're transporting loads of them, there's obviously less weight and less yeah. volume and stuff. So transport emissions are going nice. down. And um, I've, you know, I've tried a bunch of them that are made from all sorts of different things. And this is finally one that I think actually I've been using for a few months now and feels really nice on my hair because I've definitely yeah. recommended things in the past, which I'm new to. So yeah. now I, I want to only recommend things that I've really embedded in my life now yes. um, instead of just getting excited about the eco label. Yeah, no, that's good. I think I've tried some of those shampoo bar things and didn't really, yeah, didn't sort of like, didn't get up to much. Uh, like some of the new, the, the, you know, the healthier low-tech de deodorants as well, similar, similar deal. So that's good to know that there's, there's good ones that cut the mustard. Oh, if you're um, interested in deodorant, yeah. and this is a massive, like, I shouldn't really, well... They, they do sponsor the, the podcast, um, but Wild Deodorant mm. I've genuinely been using for about two years now, and they, they do honestly okay. cut the mustard, and they smell yeah. so good. Nice. Okay. Wild. Deodorants. Wild. I'll send you a cool. discount code. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, they're, they're genuinely really good. But yeah, no, so, okay, so two small but good things, I think. Two small but good things. But let's um, let's shuffle then to, to massive things, because it's been so interesting 
to watch your research, understand a little bit more about what you do and and to do some kind of a bit of frantic Googling before talking to you. Because this is something I know absolutely zilch about and I'm sure that'll become abundantly clear throughout this episode. But um, let's let's start perhaps with how do you define nature connection or nature connectedness? Because that's the crux of what we're talking about. Yes. Um, so nature connectedness is, yeah, it's kind of referring to something quite specific. And it's quite, it's a, it's a kind of complex, multifaceted something. Um, but particularly, it's encompassing one's sense of being part of a wider interconnected web of life so it's tied to that feeling that you're a member of a a wider ecological family that makes up the natural world um, essentially and it's it's complex in that it's made up of aspects of your personality of your cognition and emotions of your childhood contact and experiences with nature so there's quite a few sort of different things Mm. that kind of synergize and and comprise it um essentially synergize is a great word as well that's not one i think we've used on the podcast much but i think we will be soon um no that's brilliant i think it's probably fair to say that everybody's like relationship with nature is probably quite individual very unique you know it's, it's, it's built on all of these experiences and things so what what does your relationship with nature look like and and has it changed during your life do you think um yeah no you so you're right it's a very um it's a highly personal and subjective uh thing that's that will will vary with um with individuals um and i would say my connection to nature's all it's always been strong i would say even before i was kind of consciously aware of it really mm. um you know my mum said i'd be i'd be crawling around poking around in the garden oh. you know before i could walk or talk and she seemed to have the same thing but she she was like hugely uh passionate and still is about birds and, and bird watching mm. and even from a very very young age even though actually she she grew up in in a city leicester and had a had a quite small modest garden and but sort of even sort of a slight lack of nature didn't do anything to kind of get in the way of her connection and love for it. Um, whereas I grew up in Leicester for the first two years and sort of, yeah, I've since that time, I've more been kind of in the countryside and had more, more nature on my doorstep, I guess. Um, so it's always sort of been there as a love. I was, you know, I was pond dipping. I was kind of mess poking around in rivers and, um, I would, uh, yeah, occasionally say going on holiday, it would always blow my mind going to the tropics or somewhere yeah. like that, which entirely different. Um, yes, entirely different and kind of alien compared to what I knew from here, but but really exciting because of that. So it's always it's always been there, and I think as I got older, I kind of I funneled that into my into an academic career. So I did a bit of um, entomology and PhD in ecology. So it's always been a source of kind of joy, peace, intellectual uh, stimulation, uh, which I'm, yeah, feel very grateful for, actually, and quite, yeah, quite lucky to, to have had. I think a lot of people have maybe found it more as well in recent years. I don't, I don't, I don't know whether that's just my echo chamber and because I myself yeah. lent more in towards it. I, I like you, nature's always been a massive part of my life and something that's always been quite enchanting, but only maybe in the last five, six, well, I mean, if, I guess maybe 10 years, um, but more more so recently, where I've really started to like 
want to put names on things and understand mm. how everything properly works together as a unit um where instead of just being like wow nature's amazing really wanted to get under the skin of yeah of, of, of like walking around and seeing okay there's a hazel tree i know that in september i'll be able to collect hazelnuts okay perhaps that's the lens for me at the moment the lens for me is foraging Foraging's my big interest this year yeah being nice. able to see yeah. okay i know this is a pineapple weed like so yesterday i went for a walk yesterday and shoved this thing in my oh, boyfriend's yeah. face i was like smell this it smells like pineapple and he's like okay <laughs> But yeah, for me, walking around. I yeah. did exactly the same thing with the pineapple weed with my friends that I mentioned. Really, that, we did the litter picking. Yeah, there was some pineapple weed on the on the farm. I did exactly the same. Get this in your face. It's, it's it's such a strong smell. It really surprised me. I, I'd heard everyone saying that it smells like pineapple, and I was like, oh, how can it really smell like pineapple? But it truly does. It smells yeah like if pineapple and Haribo had a baby. It's very sugary. Yeah, um, and this stuff that you know this this these kind of experiences actually um are quite important for for nature connectedness this kind of tuning into nature with your various senses is is an important aspect of it not not the only uh thing that sort of makes it up but it's definitely quite important uh, but no i think you're i think you're right i think more broadly as well in terms of my my mum said you know when she was into nature when she was when she was young like it was considered it was a, a somewhat fringe somewhat kind of almost nerdy topic mm. that was sort of you know it was kind of a minority pursuit and she's sort of quite amazed with how popular and how mainstream it's it's come in though in the intervening decades and it is today mm. um which i think is 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 positive and obviously yeah perhaps um covid and and you know the lockdowns and and people's access and having sort of access to nature there kind of maybe slightly amplified that as well um but yeah i think that's that's that that upswing and in interest is 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 really a good thing yeah i mean a good thing for two reasons right one because nature connection is good for us and two because nature connectedness is also likely to be very good for the planet so that's a yes. very professional segue into my next question which is why why is it so good why is nature connectedness something that we need to be excited about both personally and planetarily yeah i think that's something that um, really interests me about it as something to think about and look at is there's such good bang for your buck there uh, in terms of firstly for the individual Nate there's a there's a pretty strong robust evidence base now to show that nature connectedness is tied generally to sort of uh, good mental or physical mm. health uh, but particularly this form of well-being um, eudaimonic well-being so Oh, well, that's a phrase I've not heard before. Eudaimonic. Yeah, so eudaimia, I think it's from eudaimia. I hope I'm saying it right. So there's hedonic well-being, mm. which is a, a term used by psychologists simply to sort of designate feeling good, um, essentially. Whereas eudaimonic well-being is, is a sort of, it's a higher level, I would say, form of well-being, tied more to self-actualization, vitality the pursuit of a life of virtue through human excellence i think it's been wow. defined uh so <laughs> and it's yeah so it seems and nature connectedness in particular seems to sort of be strongly linked to this which is which is interesting and other things as well like it's it's negatively associated with, with things like anxiety positively linked to personal development and self-reported personal growth thing, things like that so there's there's the benefits to the individual um it 
it affects the you know we all know that being in nature is good for us mm-hmm. um you know getting outside into nature is 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 good for our mental health and nature connectedness has a role there too so it acts as a mediator for some of the benefits to mind and emotions um that that come through through spending time in nature through having contact with nature and then yeah importantly for the, t- the times we find ourselves in um nature connectedness is a strong if not the, the strongest psychological predictor of pro nature behaviors mm. pro nature attitudes and actions yeah t- totally so i mean the overall get like and i guess i guess we'll get onto this a bit more later but the overall aim for when we're talking about kind of climate solutions is obviously we want as many people, as many companies, as many organisations, just everyone mm-hmm. on earth to be pro-environmental and doing pro-environmental behaviours. So the, yeah. one of the questions is we're so disconnected from nature. That's why we're in this yeah. mess. So it's, yeah. it seems to me like one of the biggest kind of cruxes of the matter is how do we get everybody to increase their nature connectedness? Because then arguably we sound a much better shot at fixing the mess that we're in. That's, yeah. that's a huge yeah. question though, isn't it? It is no, and it's it's one I've I've you know it's something I've thought about um, for a while now, and you know, and it's it's very much relevant, particularly to the UK context. So there was a study published quite recently that the Guardian reported just a week or two ago, and yeah, Britain rates lowest out of all European nations surveyed for average nature connectedness for our psychological connection to nature and we also know independently of that that the uk is considered one of the most nature depleted ecologically degraded parts of the world in terms of the the amount of original biodiversity that we've lost mm. so and I, and I see these things as there it seems like the the lot the lack of the sort of low levels of nature connectedness are both symptomatic of that but also a potential cause mm. um, of that as well and it's it's such um it's such a broad and deeply i would say entrenched problem that there's no one quick fix solution here no um and i guess that's that's yeah unfortunately not i guess that's fairly fairly obvious but there's so to kind of tackle something like on this scale is going to be going to require a few different approaches and i see this as a few different things so so more nature-based education, uh, you know, get, getting the young people connected to, to their local environments. Like, that's so important. I think they've brought out a, a GCSE natural history yes, I would have uh, recently. Loved so there's that when I was doing my GCSEs. I would too. So there, there is, you know, there's, there's at least movements in some kind of right direction to sort of address this yeah. um, to some degree, which is, which is good. Um, there's huge inequalities in actually having access to nature in, in the UK um, in terms of socio-democratic kind of, um, yeah, a- access. So there's, there's these huge disparities in who can access nature. And that, that really needs addressing as well. That's a kind of major problem. And, and also just for people's health and well-being as well. Obviously, just sort of touching on the biodiversity loss, I feel as well that, yeah, we need to, we need to push back against this loss of uh, biodiversity. And we need, yeah, we need to enhance 
uh, biodiversity we need to restore ecosystems if we can and potentially reintroduce species such as beavers that can help mm. in that process and then some of my other work touches on the possibility of um, psychedelic substances such as psilocybin which is the active compound in magic mushroom um, can also potentially shift people's relationship to nature in um, in quite an enduring manner so there's you know there's 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 a few different potential options here it's not like we're lacking options mm. but it's um yeah it's a big big problem to to tackle and i also think as well we've got the the mindset of our of our culture of our civilization is has a lot to answer for here mm. uh, going back to well our sort of I guess, Abrahamic religious beliefs and views on nature, very early scientific thinking, uh, dualism that emerged that viewed sort of humans as elevated and separate from nature, possessing mind or soul and all other beings and animals being essentially mindless automata mm. that we could do with as we please. And so there's, you know, we've got this quite rigid anthropocentric view on things that we're top of the pyramid and everything else is is below us and obviously ecologically speaking that's that's a, that's false not, um, you yeah. know that's not how it how it works and so it's about shifting out of this you know we have we've inherited these these i guess worldviews mm. and we don't often stop to think about them like are they actually accurate are they actually doing us doing us good mm. and is the root of them the main problem as to why we're in the mess that we're in, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly, yeah. it, I think. And I think that's, what's really interesting about your work with, um, with psychedelics. It, it's, it's undermining, like you said, that concept of us being better than nature or nature being something to be dominated instead of, instead of, whereas, you know, whereas the work that you've been doing is looking at a lot more how experiencing or taking um, psychedelics like psilocybin can help you instead realize that we're very very intertwined completely matted with mm. we are part of nature there isn't an us and them there is just yeah. everything yes no that's a that's a nice that's a nice way of putting it there was actually a study just just published um literally two days ago and they looked at various different components of nature connectedness uh but among them speciesism mm. and they found that people who were reporting kind of higher nature connectedness uh, as a result of psychedelic use there was a highly significant relationship for, for those psychedelic users to report having less speciesist views ah yeah that, that is fascinating okay so so that's that's let's go on to your research then with psilocybin and, and other psychedelics so uh, yeah as we've said it's one of the kind of the active components in magic mushrooms it can cause hallucinogenic or psychedelic effects when it's consumed um, it, I read that it can be found in nearly 200 species of fungi. Didn't know that. Very stupidly yes. just thought that magic mushrooms were a one thing. <laughs> the species, mushroom magicus, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I've, you know, I've read that psychedelics can be described as something that can unbreak a lot of connections in your brain that, that feel quite entrenched and help form new ones. So it can untangle you know, these feelings of stress, anxiety, depression, maybe PTSD-related thinking, obsessive-compulsive kind of related thinking, things that feel very hardwired. And it yeah, can yes. replace them with new routes of thinking, new ways of dealing with things. So so let's have a have a quick look at that. How, you know, how do psychedelics really impact us as people? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's um, they're sort of having a bit of a moment now in terms of there was all the research that happened in the 1950s and 60s and quite promising research. Back in the 60s or the mid 60s, these substances started getting out onto the street, basically, and sort of became part of the, the, the countercultural party bag, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, and that sort of made governments and the authorities um, worried and concerned. So, so around the mid 60s, there was, there was pretty much a worldwide blanket ban. And that sort of obviously put a lid on the, on, on the work. Uh, well, the research and clinical work that was also being mm. done. So it was quite a there was quite a loss that sort of came with that. And yeah, since about the nineties, work started to sort of um, get going again. A few early pining researchers just carefully sort of working with the authorities to sort of try and yeah legitimise some some modern studies. And and now things are kind of really um, picking up pace, I, I guess you could say. And the current focus, really, I would say, is um, is is clinical mm. so um certain mental health conditions like major depression addiction existential anxiety so people who have a terminal diagnosis and are faced with their mortality oh. um or post-traumatic stress disorder as well and all these conditions we don't have particularly good mainstream medical or therapeutic treatments at this mm -hmm. time and it's it from the studies that are sort of have been done and are ongoing. It seems that psychedelics, when used um, in a supervised therapeutic context, so people are prepared for these experiences with their therapists, and then they have a supported session where there's there's therapists sort of present, and then they'll have some follow up integration work after the session. And it's showing that yeah, these things can sort of potentially act as as treatments where yeah perhaps there aren't many other options available that's fascinating so i first became aware of that kind of potential use of it in kind of mental health treatment by watching the fantastic fungi documentary just like everybody else on netflix last year with paul stamets who's yes. basically king of all things mushroom and i went into it being like okay, i can't wait to learn more about the interconnectedness of fungi in the soil because that's the viewpoint that i was going from and then suddenly there was this whole section on it actually potentially being incredible for yeah our nature connectedness and our mental health and well-being and um and it just it blew my mind and it's it's just it's fascinating but i think i and maybe you know this what what kind of state are we in in the uk in terms of that becoming something that we might see on a more regular agenda because we did we correct me if i'm wrong did we start trialing not psilocybin was it dmt which is an active part of ayahuasca so one of the other kind of shamanic shamanistic yeah. um compounds often used in indigenous communities we've we've started trialing that have we well it's funny that you say that yeah i know i have two of my friends work are, are involved in in the trials using dmt oh, in, a, in a major depressive context and so yes so how's it going <laughs> well i mean it seems sort of it's i think it's too early to say i think the the, the clinical work is still ongoing mm. um but that's sort of i think dmt is quite appealing because it's such a short lasting but such a powerful experience so you know in 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 the sort of scope of about 10 to 15 minutes you can have a very very 
immersive and powerful experience and sort of come back from that and obviously in a clinical context where you you've got the clinicians or the therapists you've got their time as well I think sort of there's there's an appeal to look Mm. for kind of short lasting uh, things whereas something like psilocybin is more of a kind of five six hour experience so yes there is work going on so Imperial College in London is I would say, kind of leading the charge, King's College London as well. And there's now an increasing number of other universities and research departments looking at this. But I think, yeah, current sort of still focuses um, major depression um, and Imperial's now looking at anorexia as well, eating disorders. Um, So there's all these, yeah, there's, there's sort of, there's more, I guess, established work where there's now like phase two, or and or phase three trials beginning to happen where there seems to be promise for a certain condition and then there's also as in the case of anorexia there's phase one studies where there could be um a potential yeah usefulness for psilocybin um in treating a, a particular condition and we're just doing the initial work to see if it's safe and to see if there's any promise there to take mm. it forward oh fantastic so in, in these kind of contexts where we're looking at it in terms of like a, a kind of medical therapeutic response to conditions, the conditions that we're looking at are really intense and there are a lot of kind of mental health problems. But how do we then or is do you think that we will move to then also seeing because you and a lot of your research has proved that or has looked into the fact that nature connectedness is one of the other side effects of these experiences. Mm. How, how can that be the focus, do you think? Or will that ever be the focus? Or will, will that more be like a side effect of um, yeah. other things? Because we can't just drop a, a bunch of psilocybin into the water in the UK and then wake up the next day with no. really like nature-connected people who suddenly want to restore our wetlands and our forests and our coastlines. Yes. How, you know, how, how do we kind of, beyond it being, oh, this is a really cool thing that it does do. Mm. I mean, I've talked about, so a really important aspect of, of psychedelics is is the how important context is around their use and 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 i think for some people saying now the the medical establishment is is obviously getting more interested in these things but some people coming from i guess a medical context are, are you are used to sort of prescribing drugs that will treat a certain condition and you take the drug and then you report whereas with a psychedelic it's you're at you're taking essentially like a catalyst or an amplifier that mm. magnifies the context in which they're taken. They, they act very differently to other substances that are part of our kind of medical arsenal, I guess you could say. And so, yeah, the sort of the context, well, the set and setting, you know, the, the mental state that you kind of go into the experience, like your emotional state, do you have prior experiences? What are your expectations? What's going on in your life at the time? That's all important. But where you do it, like, are you doing it out in the woods somewhere are you doing it at a music festival are you doing it um on a on a bed in a kind of therapist's um room you know all those contexts will likely have very different outcomes and i've tried to sort of make a case for incorporating more nature into people's sessions potentially and that's tricky right now here in the uk so psilocybin is a is a class a schedule one substance so it's the strictest of strict arguably more um, toxic or addictive um, substances with more limited medical utility so diamorphine or uh, heroin or methamphetamine cocaine are all they're all schedule two 
So in the eyes of the establishment, psilocybin is is the most dangerous of all despite it being wow benign okay. like it's non-toxic yeah. people don't really don't overdose from psilocybin it doesn't does that harm. Think stem from the fear that the government uh, or the establishments found at that period of time you were talking about earlier kind of in the 50s where it started to become quite prevalent it's a i think you're right i think there is there's a kind of hangover there's a yeah. there's a cultural um hangover from that time particularly with something you know as notorious i guess as lsd because of those restrictions, you can't simply take people outside into nature having having dosed them. It's just like against no. the, the rules <laughs> and the law. You can only administer these things in monitored research hospital settings at this time. So my I mean, obviously, the law is more amenable to other possibilities in other parts of the world. So in the Netherlands, uh, psilocybin in truffle form, mycelium form is is legal. Um, but my thought is if you can't take people out into nature, maybe you can bring some nature into the into the clinic potentially. Oh, okay. What does that look like? Well, you know, it could start could be very simple from things like more nature-based photography and art in the session space. Um, you know, maybe some plants. Um, you could give someone even a little um plant or a planted seed and a plot to kind of take away, uh, which sounds maybe a Ooh. bit sort of but you know once people have had these experiences they're encouraged in the part of the therapeutic practice to kind of well to, to sort of go over the insights that may have come up in the session you know what came up for you and how are you then going to apply that in your life so you know as you go away having hopefully nurturing those insights that have come up and, and sort of grounding them into your into your into your life um yeah you'll have a little a little plant or something to also nurture at the same time as you're hopefully nurturing those insights. And it's a kind of, yeah, it's a little reminder of that session. And obviously you can call that quaint, but I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's a few things like that. Um, a few practices like I've talked about Shinrin Yoku or Japanese forest bathing or horticultural therapy, things like this that you could have either side of the of the psychedelic session so it doesn't necessarily oh, okay. have to happen in the session itself it could happen either side of it and still be a value i think mm. so after you've had your experience you go and lie in the yes. forest you sit and you breathe and you listen and you yes. observe and then all of the kind of feelings that you experience and the memories that you have of the experience that you've just had can kind of maybe put new context new spin on the forest Ye bathing and yeah I mean, the fascinating thing for me about things like psilocybin is they, you know, nature connectedness is not a particularly easy thing to shift. You mm. know, it's considered, it's, it's a trait. And, you know, we refer to personality traits as traits because they're quite deeply set and, and persistent. Mm. And, you know, nature connectedness can be a, a state which is more sort of in the moment what you're feeling in the moment but it tends to be conceptualized as a trait something more persistent and enduring and it's quite deeply set it's not the easiest thing to change mm. um, but what's really interesting about psilocybin and, and other psychedelics is that they can potentially bring about this increase in in nature connectedness or this shift in people's relationship to nature and that will happen blindly so even if you're obviously when people have been given psychedelics in these studies this was never something that was particularly on the cards or or of interest but it happened yeah. anyway and it also seems to happen even when you administer 
things like psilocybin in a kind of nature deprived, I would say, clinical setting. And right. this is this is really quite curious because all the other nature connectedness enhancing interventions that I'm aware of that have been studied, things like residential stays in national parks, nature-based educational and engagement programs, you know, unsurprisingly, nature is the main focus in all of these things. Yeah. Um, which you kind of expect. Whereas in, in the psychedelic context, that doesn't actually seem to be in, well that important. Although I would argue, you know, we could deliberately wield these things as eco-therapeutic yeah. nature-connecting agents and potentially get more out of them in that respect. Oh, it's just fascinating. It's it's a whole new world to me, and it's it's so interesting. Mm. But go on. I think I have to ask you the obvious question. You're a man who researches psychedelics. Have you partaken? Go on. Yes, I, I, I am experienced. I, so <laughs> when, I was, when I was starting my undergraduate degree in, uh, at Imperial, actually, I was in my first year of zoology at the time. Mm. And yeah, I just happened to be in London at the time when mushrooms were legal. You could buy boxes ah. of fresh magic mushrooms. Uh, in so why were they legal at the time then? If it's um, if back in like the fifties and sixties, everything got banned. a result of just silly laws and loopholes it written into those laws. Oh, so okay. for some reason, fresh mushrooms were um, considered at that time a food stuff. Uh, okay, I, I don't great. know. And then if they were prepared in any way, if they were dried or processed in any way, they became a class A substance. Oh, okay. So that was, that was the law. That was the loophole in the law. And people found that and sort of made the most of it while they could before that loophole was yeah, yeah, sealed, tied tight, sealed. <laughs> so you went and did your grocery shopping. Well, well yeah, I, I, I did. I mean, it's funny because before then, you know, I'd not been, um, I guess I would have been considered pretty anti-drug, really. I wasn't sort of, um, you know, mm. didn't didn't smoke, like didn't, you know, drank a little bit now and again, but not not a big drinker and wasn't really interested or kind of particularly open to other things. But for some reason I was, yeah, I was a bit sort of curious. I'd read some compelling things. So now I was, I guess I was curious and I wanted to kind of know for myself and one of my school friends was sort of I guess my co-pilot for these early experiences he was also interested like and and it was good having someone I, I guess I knew well and trusted and, and we sort of had each other's backs I guess um, yeah totally particularly when you were saying how important context and setting yes. is for driving that experience well I did I, I learned that the kind of hard way I guess you could say oh, no. <laughs> um, the, the first time we uh, had mushrooms, we went to this electronic nightclub at Fabric uh, for, and we didn't really, it didn't obviously didn't quite fully know the whole set and setting thing. And it was a train wreck of, of an evening. Oh, we'll, no. we'll put it that way. But I kind of came away, even though it was fairly harrowing an experience, I kind of realized in spite of that, that I'd encountered something powerful and interesting mysterious something that i wanted to kind of meet on more respectful humble terms taking taking better care of of the setting and things like that which is what i did and was i feel re rewarded for having having done that ultimately 
Um, I suppose we should probably put a disclaimer in here uh, that we're not encouraging people to go out and try and buy these things and try them in unsupervised settings and, and that kind of stuff. I feel no. like that should go without saying, no, I but think maybe it does actually need saying. I think it, it, that is a good thing to say. You know, the, these things are um, very powerful and quite unpredictable. And, you know, even when set and setting is well thought out and, you know, obviously in an indigenous context, they're done respectfully, they're done with preparation and they're done in certain contexts and in a therapeutic Western context that similar rules also apply. So yes, it's important to say that, yeah, these things are really quite powerful and they do need, you know, they're not, I wouldn't say they're, they're physically risky, toxic, but psychologically they are very impactful and they need careful um, handling and, and respect. Mm, I like the way that you described it when you said you, you came around to try it again, is that you're approaching it with a bit more kind of humility and respect and, and, and creating that environment that was more, it was a very holistic way that you described it. And I liked that. I'll mm. stick with me. Yeah. Um, but well, from, from one thing that we're encouraging people not to do, apart from learn more about, to one thing we can encourage them to do, and this is a slight departure, but also does follow on the theme of nature connectedness. Some of your other research, and this is how you and I met in the first place, was actually looking at beaver wetlands and yes. the role that beaver wetlands can have in increasing our nature connectedness and all of the benefits to you know mental well-being in communities. Go on, just give us a little a little kind of summary as to your work there because it's, it's just brilliant. And um, and then maybe anyone who's interested in psychedelics instead, we can shuffle them towards Beaver Wetland. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, so this was kind of, I guess, partly inspired by some of the, yeah, some of the psychedelic work on nature connectedness. That obviously increased my knowledge and awareness of nature connectedness more broadly. Um, and obviously, you know, having already touched on it, aware of the biodiversity decline that we are experiencing, have experienced here in the UK. And so one of the things that seems to be eroding nature connectedness, I mean, there's a few things, electronic entertainment usage, particularly in the young, seems to be important. Um, but something that seems to be quite major is this what has been termed the extinction of experience. And that is essentially a diminished potential for everyday interactions with nature, with non-human mm. life. And obviously that can come about through increasing urbanization. Uh, more and more of us are living in cities, a lack of access to green space, as mentioned previously, but also more broadly biodiversity loss and, mm. and loss of wildlife. So one of the things that's being put forward to push back against this is species reintroduction and bringing back lost, lost wildlife where, where it should be and, and should rightfully be. And then I thought, ah, okay, so, well, that seems quite interesting with respect to beavers because mm. beavers aren't your average species to bring back. You know, no, they they're are, they're a keystone species. They've been shown in numerous studies, they can increase biodiversity at the landscape level. Mm. And there's very few other species, I think, that have this sort of like powerful effect on the environment. So we know that they increase um, biodiversity of plants, of invertebrates and insects, of, of water birds, of mammals, of, of fish as well. And not just overall richness, but also abundance mm. um, in some cases as well. 
And, you know, we know from mental health research that so-called green space and blue space, you know, which is more water bodies are beneficial to our mental health and well-being, but in slightly different ways. And obviously beavers engineer this kind of mosaic of green and blue space. Yes, you get the best of those different sort of environments, but then you get this broad level increase in biodiversity, abundance of wildlife. But then also you've got the effects of beavers themselves, which I would sort of or do argue that they're they kind of act as a, a flagship species or as a kind of a poster child or an ambassador animal mm. that can help ignite an interest in nature because of their, you know, they're charismatic, they're funny looking things and they have fascinating yeah. habits in the way that they, you know, they build downs and they fell trees and you don't even need to see a beaver to mm. get a buzz of what they're doing uh, yes, to the environment. Totally. Yeah. I should also just mention as well, we've got this quite nefarious issue that sort of complicates matters called shifting baseline syndrome Mm. where because of this biodiversity loss and this ecological degradation it's like we're sort of over time because we're we're people you know we basically we live quite short little lives and (laughs) we tend to frame the quality of wildlife or nature around us based on what we know from our life experience our lifespan we're not very good at thinking back to what would nature have been like, say, a generation previously, half a century, a century, two centuries, uh, half a millennium. Mm. And unfortunately, that can kind of lead to this sort of gradual erosion and ratcheting down of our expectations of what we think good quality nature and wildlife habitat is. We're, We're biased into, we only see, when we look out at natural landscape, we only see what's there. We don't see what's missing from Mm. it and unless you address this you can kind of as wildlife as biodiversity loss kind of goes on and on as it's you know essentially seems to be in in many quarters we're still losing biodiversity it's like our expectations are also being successively lowered over time and that is you know that's tied to nature connectedness and the will and desire to want to conserve and protect nature Mm. so and the reason we've got such low nature connectedness here is likely partly mediated by uh, the poor shoddy state of our of our nature of our wildlife but the 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 sort of positive thing here is that through biodiversity increase through greater Mm. contact with nature that that can come with that nature connectedness itself can can increase and sort of the aptitude and willingness to restore and protect nature also increases with it with those associated benefits to mental health as well so you know it doesn't have to be this negative spiraling loop of doom we we do have potentially have the power to push back and reverse Mm -hmm. that uh with enough collective will and desire to i think that's the perfect place to end because you've left us on a very hopeful moment i think there's a lot of hope in all of the research that you do um beavers for me have always been a species that have symbolized kind of hope particularly in the UK yeah. when we've got them coming back. Yeah. So I, th- I think that's really lovely. Thank you so, so much for telling me all about all of your research and for spending this time this morning with me. I'm, I'm just completely fascinated. I think this was a slightly different uh, episode for Ford Earth, but I really hope the listeners have enjoyed that as much as I've enjoyed talking to you because you've really got me thinking a lot more. Um, and, and I've always thought that I'm someone that is quite nature connected, but the idea that 
there could be even more to come is quite exciting. Um, mm. And yeah, I, the different mechanisms for which we can try and help other people increase their nature connectedness are really interesting. Be that, like you said, <laughs> drug trials or spending time in a beaver wetland or just encouraging people around you. Like you said, you went on a walk with your friends. You encouraged them to do some pro-environmental behaviours. We both shoved strange weeds into our friends' faces and said, yeah. listen, connect with this. It's, it's right in your face. I think one of the things we try and do at the podcast is, is give people slightly more tools to deal with whatever topic it is we're talking about. And um, perhaps that's, that's one of um, when we're talking about, in general, dealing with the climate and ecological crisis, increasing your own nature connectedness, but also maybe spending time finding ways to help the people around you spread that ripple effect of increasing their yes. nature connectedness is one of the best things perhaps we can do as individuals. I, I, I mean, I think it's really important. And this is, yeah, just something just to maybe mention quickly in terms of, you know, we've got all the facts and evidence that's coming in of, of like humans effect on the environment, on biodiversity, you know, the facts are, are clear as day and they're staring us in the face, but they don't seem to be motivating the, the needed changes at the speed or scale that, that we really need. And it's sort of, interesting to note that nature connectedness is it's not a rational detached objective knowledge-based thing really at all like it can be like once you've got that baseline love for an emotional connection to an experiential connection to nature yeah mm -hmm. i think knowledge about nature and being able to apply labels to things can play a part but it's it's primarily it's an emotional experiential connection it's not something rational or knowledge-based mm. um so that's why i think there's this slight disconnect between we have all this evidence of what we're doing and yet there's the the will or desire to sort of really do something about it is sort of not pairing up with that um so it's really important that we forge these um, emotional experiential connections to to nature oh brilliant well yeah that's that's wonderful thank you thank you so so much sam um, good luck with the rest of your research. I look forward to work, uh, to seeing what you do next. It's all, it's always absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for spending some time with me oh, this morning. Well, thank you very much for yeah having me, Emma. Yeah, really, not, really nice to chat. Thank you. And for more from For What It's Earth, don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So Instagram, we're on For What It's Earth podcast, and that's the same for Facebook. And Twitter, we're on at What Earth Pod. You can email us at forwhatitsearthpod at gmail.com. You can leave us a lovely little five-star review, go on, you know you want to, on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. It really helps us out. You can even buy a t-shirt with our logo on it or a nice hoodie. Um, we'll drop the link to that in the episode description. As always, all of our opinions are ours. They're nothing to do with anyone that we work for or are affiliated with. So if you want to have a chat about anything that we've said, take it up with us. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Sam's just wonderful, absolutely fascinating. And uh, we'll see you very soon for another episode of For What It's Earth. Bye.